Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. But we have one last week here in Genesis uh, as we wrap up this 12-week kind of whirlwind uh, series through the very first book of the Bible. And today, I think, will also feel a bit like a whirlwind as we wrap up uh, chapters 42 through 50, the last half of the story of Genesis. So we're going we're gonna to be all over the place this morning. I, what I want to do is help us get some big picture ideas of how... Uh, the story of Genesis um, works together, where the story of Joseph fits in the midst of that, how the story of Joseph itself is so artistically crafted, artfully put together. Uh, I want us to, to take a look at, uh, at all of those things. Before we dive into the story of, of Joseph, though, I just want to remind us and, and just plant this seed in, in our minds and our hearts as we move forward. Just this little reminder that Genesis is the seedbed for the rest of Scripture. Genesis is the seedbed for the rest of Scripture. So anywhere else that we go on, whether it's into the next book in Exodus and a continuation of the, of the Israel story, or it's on into the, the New Testament or somewhere in the prophets, anywhere we go, we can find threads. If, and if we pull on those themes and those threads long enough, it usually will take us back to the book of Genesis. Now, we've not looked at every single character, every single topic, but we have looked at some of the main Ones. And so I, I put this out there just as like just a personal encouragement for you as you go about your own personal study of Scripture and your own reading of, uh, of Scripture. I'll always be asking, how does this connect to something else in, in Scripture? Because the, the way that the, the whole of the Bible works together is just remarkable, and there's no end of the connections that we we can see. So I hope that a little bit of what we've seen in Genesis, from the creation themes to thinking about grace from the very beginning, as that as God's like moving towards us, or thinking about blessing or the, the covenant promises uh, of God, that any of those themes that you see throughout Scripture, I always think, man, that started back in Genesis. And of course, it's been a treatise on faith that we have, have seen as well, and we will get back into that today. But for now, I want to plop into Genesis 42, pick up where we left off. We kind of got through chapter 41 uh, last week. Um, and at this point, Joseph is in charge of Egypt. He has risen in the ranks uh, time and again, and he's risen all the way to the top now. And Pharaoh is like, you know what? Everything is in your charge. Don't ask me any questions. If you got a question, ask Joseph. That is where he has risen at this point. A remarkable thing from a, from a pit out in the desert to left for dead, all the way to the top of the ranks in a foreign land. And then his family comes back into the picture. And the last time that Joseph's family was in the picture, how were things going for Joseph? Not so great. This is, I think I mentioned it last week, last week, but this story is a, 
It's family systems theory before there was family systems theory. And this, these few chapters here remind us that family systems die hard. <sighs> Chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Uh, what I want to do is look at one of these chapters, uh, just some of the interaction between Joseph and his brothers, and then start to connect it to, to later. We're not going to, there's so much here, we can't cover it all. But just to get a taste of what his uh, re, um, response is to his brothers. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, so we are a couple, we are a little bit into the famine at this point. He learned that there was grain in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? <laughs> He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so that we may live and not die. He's <clears throat> like, hello, what are you doing just sitting around? Are you hoping that we just die here, sitting here like starving? <sighs> A little passive aggressive dad is always good for all of us. <clears throat> Love that. Why are you just sitting there looking at each other? Verse three, then, uh, then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, an important detail there. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with the others. Like the last time I sent the youngest one, what, what happened? Uh, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. Remember that he had named his son Manasseh. For God has caused me to forget everything from my past. He had really wiped the slate clean, even put out of his mind those dreams that kind of started this whole dissension thing. He remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Think of those words coming out of their mouths to Joseph. We are honest men. Hmm. No, he said to them, rightfully so. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lived in Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. It's the way the way that we get stories in scripture. It's so truncated. It's so short. So much faster than any other like story that we read in a book, or even even a short story form for us is is longer than what we get in the text of scripture. And so we just go bam, 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 one detail to the next. And sometimes we miss just the weight of what is happening in this moment. For those brothers to say to him, and one is no more, Joseph has to be like, you have no idea what you are saying. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother 
The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. Let's see if you are actually that honest, my friends. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them in custody for three days. Now, if you remember back to last week, our very first point about Joseph was was what? Joseph is a punk. And that seems to have not changed. No update to Joseph, Joseph's punk status. Uh, but maybe we could understand why here, right? He might have little cause to just mess with his brothers just a little bit. On the third day, three whole days, again, truncated story, one detail to the next, three whole days, his brothers are in jail in Egypt thinking we are never going back. You got to wonder what's going through their minds. On the third day, Joseph said to them, okay, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. At this point, you're talking seven, eight plus years since they left him for dead in a pit. You want to talk about a plagued conscience. The first time that they meet turmoil together, their most logical conclusion is this is happening to us because of what we have done before. Can you imagine how many sleepless nights there had been between that moment that they sold him and this moment of confrontation that they don't even know is happening at this point. Wild how things can follow you. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Not a detail we got earlier in the story, but youch. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben's like, I told you not to do this. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter, which is a fascinating little detail. Did Joseph forget his mother tongue? That seems unlikely. I don't, that's a very interesting fact that he's got a little interpreter there helping him out. He turned away from them and began to weep. And the years of grief about this entire situation start to, start to hit home. pulls himself together. He came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So Joseph gave orders to fill their bag with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, which is both being a punk and providing for your family at the same time. That's a jo Joseph's sweet spot. <laughs> After this was done for them, they loaded their grain and their, on their donkeys and they left at the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and saw the silver in the mouth of his, <laughs> of his pack. <sighs> My silver has been returned. Here it is. Their hearts sank and turned to each other, trembling, and said, what is this that God has done to us? They are having a rough time. And I imagine Joseph is just kind of smiling to himself uh, as he thinks about their turmoil on the, way, on the way back. They finally get back to... 
to Joseph. Uh, drop down to verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you and trust him to my care and I will bring him back. And I would just say, I'm happy we're not living in that kind of a culture where it's just like, yeah, put my sons to death if I can't come through on this. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Joseph, uh, Joseph's punk tendencies, um, but also the grief of his life has started to uh, resurface in, in this particular moment. And he tinkers with his brothers here for the next couple of chapters. They, they come back to Egypt and... He sends them back again, but puts the silver cup in, in Benjamin's sack and so that they have to return once more. And they're thinking at this point, what do we got to do to get out of this guy's like line of fire? What, what do we do? We can't escape. All the while, we continue the same theme that we looked at last week, that there is little to no interaction between Joseph and God through this, this part of the story. In, in strict contrast to the, the narratives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob up to that point, Joseph's life of faith is completely different there is no like connection, personal connection. God is very absent seeming throughout all of this, throughout these, these three chapters in particular where he's interacting with, with his brother. But there are two spots in this story where the theological theme is made very, very clear. And despite Joseph's lack of like, seeming immediate, like hearing from God and seeing God, there is no appearance from God anywhere in these chapters. Despite the lack of all that, Joseph makes the point of the whole story very, very clear a couple of times. And the first one of those comes in chapter 45. 45, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. The Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry. Like, seriously? Seriously? 
Do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. For the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph changes the subject of the story. He's like, you brothers, you thought you were the primary actors in my life. You thought you were the, the ultimate deciders of my fate. But God was the one working all along. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. The theme of this story is that God is working out his purposes, both through and in spite of, both through and in spite of Egypt, Joseph, his brothers, all of it. This is what the providence of God looks like. Working through and in spite of. God often works through the things that we don't expect him to and often works in spite of the things that we have put off limits to him. And God's like, you thought you were the ones who were dictating how this story was going to go. But Joseph remarkably is able to say, no, I know all of this stuff has happened to me because God desired it to. It's pretty cool the way that this story is structured. If you remember back to Genesis 37, Joseph had not one but two dreams. And in those dreams, in that moment, those dreams were interpreted as it being his brothers bowing down to him and then kind of his whole family bowing down to him. Uh, but it turns out both of those dreams have distinct fulfillments in the way that this passage, uh, the way that these chapters uh, start to unfold. Uh, the first dream, 37-7, where all the sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheave, it kind of finds its fulfillment in, uh, here do we have, I, I uh, apologize, this is not the first, this is not the last of these that you're going to see today. We have a handful of these. Uh, I'm sorry that I enjoy making them so much. <laughs> the first dream, Genesis 37-7, the sheaves bowing down to Joseph, that finds its fulfillment in Joseph ruling over his family. Joseph ruling over and tinkering with, messing with, in chapters 42 through 45. That's Joseph just kind of, kind of playing with his family. Genesis 37, 9, where the stars, the 11 stars and the moon and the sun, that's interpreted in that moment as all of Joseph's family uh, bowing down to, to him. 
And sure, that is the immediate application, but there is a broader application as well. It's a, it's a more expanded version. There's only 11 in this instance, and then there's 13. There's a, it's a more expanded picture of who all is going to be bowing down to Joseph. And in that way, the second dream finds its nearest fulfillment here in Genesis 39 through 41. As, Genesis, as Joseph rules over empire, and then Joseph rules over family. Two dreams, two different fulfillments, two different scenes as these stories start to start to unfold. And, and it's a little bit odd because we're like, it, to us, Joseph ruling, Joseph doing this ruling work, it's like, well, how could that have been God's ultimate goal? Well, let's see what exactly we mean by ruling. Chapter 45, jump back in at verse 10. This is Joseph addressing his brothers. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will simply become destitute. In this story, Joseph, Joseph's ruling it's, it's his strategic placement in a given context that leads to an opportunity to provide for others. Joseph rules in the, fact that, in, in the way that he uh, cares for others. God places him over all of Egypt, not to lord it over Egypt and be a dictator there, but to, to use his brilliant mind and his skill set to end up providing for an entire nation and their nations around them. He puts him in that context. He puts him in that context so he can then provide. That's what ruling is. And then in the context of his family. Yeah, he messes with them, but ultimately so that he can care for them. God is just moving Joseph around as a pawn in this whole story so that he can be... He can be a vessel of blessing to the rest. And think of how that fits with every single theme that we've seen through Genesis to this point. God makes us in his image so that we can be his image, his goodness to others. God wanted to bless Abraham so that the world could be blessed through him. God puts Joseph in this situation so that he can bless the people there in his immediate vicinity, but also in the nations around him. It's the same theme just worked out through this one man in this particular instance. Ruling is a chance to provide for others. There's two instances where Joseph makes clear what the point of this whole story was. One is here in 45. The other is in the final chapter of Genesis. If you turn over to chapter 50. Their father passes away. Jacob dies. The promises of the covenant go to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And now the last receiver of the, the last recipient of those promises has passed away. And so the big question is what is going to happen next? We drop in to verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, uh-oh. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him 
So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. These honest men said this about what their father said to him. Nothing changes in this relationship. Do you see that? Nothing changes. Nothing changes. Your father left these instructions. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. He was just freaking tired. He was just worn out of the nonsense, the lying, the conniving, the manipulation. He, all he had the energy left to do was just cry. Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. No. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Sit up, stand up. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Notice Joseph doesn't say me becoming ruler of Egypt. His vision at every point is God's vision. It's the saving of many lives, the blessing of others. That's the good of the situation. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The, the Hebrew word naham here, to comfort, is, a, is an important word all throughout the Old Testament Naham, Naham, comfort, oh comfort, my people, is the prophecy that rings out in Isaiah 40 at the turning of the tide, the coming out of exile. Comfort, comfort, my people. That, that same comfort Joseph provides for his family that has betrayed him and hurt him and wounded him at every possible turn. There. There's a tendency to sanitize this passage and to, to read it um, as, a, as a nice, happily ever after reconciliation story, and I just don't see it. I don't see it here. There, what, is, what is missing in this story is forgiveness. There's no like, oh, I forgive you for the wrongs. Read it. And read it again. It's not there. Nothing actually changes in this relationship. That fact does not keep Joseph from providing. He's still good to them. He is. But if we want to talk about amending of relationship, I'm not sure it's in this particular text. And that is not very fun to think about. We, we like happy endings. We like 
God wrapping up all the all the details just nice, nicely, but we got to remember God works through and in spite of, and sometimes, sometimes some relationships just don't actually end up coming all the way around, and God is still actually there in it. Faith requires us to be honest about this stuff. To be honest about our human reality and at the same time certain about God's faithfulness. To be honest about the mess of the brokenness of the stuff that we are in the midst of right now. It hasn't fixed, it hasn't gotten better, but there is a certitude in Joseph's proclamation about who God is and where God is in this story. Every time he talks about God, it is not frequently. There is not a whole lot of back and forth between Joseph and God. But every time Joseph says something about God, he's so convinced that God is there and working and doing good. It's astonishing. But do you see how if we, if we just gloss over the ick of the text, the, the grossness of the text, that, that, that we miss the, the texture of how God actually works his way into our lives. God doesn't wait for it to all get better before he works good. He's not just sitting around waiting for, for stuff to mend. As much as we want that. And God does indeed want that. I just don't want us to ever think that he's just waiting for us to come around a little bit more. Waiting for... We, do, we play these games sometimes, right? We, we, let, we let things get in the way of what we are, what we are called to in the moment. Because it hasn't come around the way that we think it ought to. But God will work through and God will work in spite of. And then the end of our text, the end of Genesis. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. They're in Egypt at this point. He'll come and he'll take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, the refrain of the rest of the Old Testament. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Don't let my bones end up in Egypt, brothers. Please do this one nice thing for me. Last verse of the entire book. So Joseph died in an age of a hundred at an age of 110. After they embalmed him, he was in he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And this story that began in a perfect garden ends in a foreign grave. That's the story of Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible. Perfection, untainted paradise, a perfect garden that results in a dusty grave in a foreign nation, a land not their own, a place of death. 
I want to take just a minute here as we wrap up to, to show how the book of Genesis unfolds and how it relates then to, to Exodus uh, as well. We know we have uh, creation in chapters 1 through 11. And chapters 12 through 36 are these patriarchal narratives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what sets up that, that whole lineage, the covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. After Genesis, we get the story of Exodus, which is a story, interesting, Genesis goes from a garden to a grave, and then Exodus tells a story from slavery to deliverance. All the while, there are these questions and, and answers about God's faithfulness. The question of Exodus is, who is God going to be for this new people, Israel? How, what is this relationship going to, to look like? And between the covenant promises of 12 through 36 in Genesis and all of the questions about who this God is, we have this fascinating little bridge story. It's actually a long kind of bridge story to help us understand Genesis 37 through 50 that ends with this. God intended it for good. Genesis is the story that starts in a perfect garden and ends in a foreign grave. But Joseph is a story that begins with a mysterious dream and ends in doxology. It, it progresses from one to the next. It's this little story of hope, the story of providence, the story that, that Israel is really going to need in their next season, their next phase. God is providing through and in spite of. Who would need that declaration more, that truth more than the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus? And so Genesis 37 through 50, it ends, ends it begins in mysterious dreams that end, and then goes on to doxology. Nathan, can we do the next slide? Props to Nathan for like my millions of slides today. So thanks so much. <laughs> Genesis 37 through 50, God's sustaining providence. This is the bridge story that makes sense of what comes before and after. It connects the whole story. It makes it a unity of the entire thing. So we can move on to the full picture and see how, Genesis, how Joseph, th this fascinating, a different kind of faith. I can't emphasize it enough. It's a different kind of faith to not interact with God and yet still see God in the midst of it all. Now, of course, God was there with him, but the way that the story tells it just makes us just makes us think, what was that relationship like for Joseph and God? We've talked a lot about faith in the, in the book of Genesis, and I think I'm more convinced than ever that it is a treatise on, on faith. It's a, an instruction manual, uh, some warnings, some exhortations along the way, but ultimately an encouragement towards the kind of faith that we ought to have and that we're going to need to have. Faith takes on a whole lot of different expressions. And I just want you to think about just a couple of things as we, as we wrap up this, this series. 
As we've explored the nature of faith throughout the book of Genesis, what themes have arisen in your heart? I was going back and looking at the, at the reflection questions from these last, these last couple of months, and they all are kind of in a, a similar genre, a similar uh, arena. And, and I wonder if, as you've been here from, from week to week, has there been something in particular? Is there an overall, an overarching area in your life that God is trying to say like, hey, hey, can we, can we talk about this? Can we work through this? Is, is there a theme that's resonated in, in your heart that's triggered for, for you? What, what steps of obedience do you sense God calling you to? This is, a, this is a question of faith. This is a question of our, we've sat here together and tried to hear what God has prompted us towards. And now what are we going to do about it? Has Genesis helped move you in a particular direction? What are you going to do now? That's, that's the personal side of it. But I also want to take a community look at it as well. Because personal and communal faith are interdependent. Your faith and our faith, my faith and our faith, are intermingled with one another as we are part of this same body together. What you and I do in our own personal faith lives has everything to do with the overall health of this body. And the overall direction that this body as a church is, is moving has everything to do with the way that your personal faith life is developing. These things are forever intertwined. That's what it means to be a body together. That's who we are. So I want to put this forward to you. In, in January, we're going to work through a series on mission and vision. Like, who are we and what are we going to do about it? So I want to put this question in front of you as we have a month to get there. There's going to be a whole lot of things on your heart and your mind over the next month. And I, I, I get that. Let this be one of them. I, I want to ask you this. How will you invest in this community and other side of the same token, how will you let it invest in you? We cannot do sustained faithfulness. We took a whole week and looked at how faith is actually faithfulness. There, we cannot do sustained faithfulness on an island. We cannot do it. We weren't designed for it. We weren't made for it. We were made to need each other. So how are you going to invest in this place? I'm really excited about where we're going as a church. I'm really excited. I believe God has big stuff ahead for us. And I believe there are steps of faith that we are going to be called to. How are you going to invest in this place? And then how are you going to let it invest in you? How are you going to let this place bother you other than on just a, just a Sunday morning? God's calling us to big, big steps of faith. Um, he does it from the very first pages of Scripture. It's been so fun to work through the book of Genesis. Just remember that the, that the book that goes from a garden to a grave sets us up. It's the seedbed for the rest of everything. It sets us up for, 
for a story that turns that grave into a new garden all over again. The rest of the story is undoing that garden to grave story from Genesis. Read it in light of that. Worship team, come on up. We're going we're gonna to sing a song. Um, prayer team's going to be up here. If there's something stirring in you, um, come chat with our, our prayer team. They'll, they would love to, to talk with you and pray with you. Come talk with me. Um, I've only been here three months at, at this point as lead lead pastor, and there's, there's still some of you that I've not had a chance to meet yet. I just just know I would love to meet you. Come up and and chat with me. I'd love to love to get to uh, connect with you. Um, I'm excited for the way that God is uh, working here. I'm excited for Advent and our and our chance to. Uh, courageously embrace joy in the midst of a world that, that does everything but.